0: everyone, and welcome once again to the Medical University of South Carolina Science Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Loretta Lynch-Reichert. This month, we take a breather from the all-consuming topic of COVID-19 and discuss another very challenging but well-researched disease, cancer. The Medical University is home to the prestigious Hollings Cancer Center, the only National Cancer Institute-designated center in South Carolina. Hollings Cancer Center is a tremendous resource not only for state-of-the-art research and discovery, but the translation of that discovery into life-saving therapies and prevention tools. Today, our guest is Dr. Dennis Guttridge, professor in the Department of Pediatrics, director of the Darby Children's Research Institute, and associate director of translational sciences at the Hollings Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Guttridge.
1: Good morning, Lorette. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Let's begin with what is the significance of a National Cancer Institute designation? Why is that so important and prestigious?
1: Well, the importance of being an NCI designated cancer center is that you literally are chartered, you're asked to carry on a mission by the National Institutes of Health, by the National Cancer Institutes. And the way I look at it, really by our US taxpayers to say, we are asking you to give us the best treatment in cancer care. And so when you have that mission, when you have that designation, you know what you're chartered to do and you take that very seriously. And for us here being the only NCI designated cancer center, the the state of South Carolina, we view it as that we have, our mission is to give the best cancer care to uh, the people of South Carolina. And um, so, when you are charted that way uh, by an NCI designation, uh, you very much know what your goals are. And all of the cancer centers, I believe, have their own way of looking at that with, with respect to their own state and, what, and and how we care for our people in the state of South Carolina.
0: And do I understand correctly that when you have an NCI designation, the focus in order to provide that state-of-the-art clinical care is research and and if so also another question related to that is because it's so prestigious how many other uh, academic health centers in the country have that NCI designation
1: right so to get to your second question first uh, I think the number now is 71 or 72 NCI designated cancer centers there's a further designation that's called comprehensive Um, But all that speaks to what you were just saying in terms of that designation does very much tie into research. And and you're absolutely correct. And when we say research, we can actually stratify that into two areas. We can talk about basic research, basic science research, which is really the research that's done in the laboratory. Um, And we can talk about what we call translational research. The research that leaves the laboratory and gets passed on to the physician so that we can start clinical trials and i think the word clinical trials now in the last year is a word that most of the public understands because of everything we've gone through with covid and we understand the importance of clinical trials and it's whether it's you're looking for a new vaccine in in, in covid19 or you're looking for a new clinical trial that will provide us uh, a a new way of treating cancer. It's exactly the same thing. It is the way to say, can you take um, a a drug? Can you take a device? Can you take a new imaging uh, diagnostic? Can you take a new biomarker? Can you take a new medical device? Whatever that is, whatever that treatment is, can we translate that into a population of patients and test whether it's really gonna make a difference, whether it's safe, first of all, and whether it's gonna make a difference. And uh, and that that is a type of research that is done in uh, an NCI-designated cancer center. Again, it is expected to. It doesn't mean that if you're not NCI-designated, you wouldn't be able to do that. It just means that if you are funded by the US taxpayer to be an NCI-designated uh, cancer center, this is your mission and you have to do that and you're expected to do that. And Every five years, we are reviewed by the NCI very rigorously, and we have to show them, have we been good researchers in the lab? Have we also been good translational researchers? And shown that we can translate that research into the clinic to accrue patients so that we can do clinical trials and show that our compounds are safe and that they're effective and that we can move them forward to be able to, again, bring better treatment.
0: And speaking of research, I'm going to delve into a question that many people ask, and I think the answer will clear up some misconceptions. The question I often hear is, why do we put so much money, time, and energy into researching cancer, but so far no cure is at hand? Can you explain to our audience the difference between the big C, cancer, and all the myriad cancers?
1: Yeah. Now, um, I'm an individual by nature that I am a glass half full kind of guy. So I will tell you that I'm I'm an optimist. Um, And that's difficult to be an optimist sometimes when you are personally affected by cancer. And I don't pretend to understand what that's like because I haven't. Fortunately, I haven't had that uh, personal experience, although many people in my family have lost my mother to breast cancer. I, I've lost my uh, my uncle to cancer, my godmother to cancer. I have a family history of cancer, and I and I take it seriously in terms of screening myself uh, routinely to, because I, I'm aware that I'm at risk. So I, I'm personally affected that way. But but I, I say that because um, being an optimist, I often tell people when I talk about cancer. That when we say, well, we started the war on cancer, or that we, meaning the Nixon administration, started the war on cancer exactly 50 years ago. We're celebrating yeah. our, the 50th anniversary in 2021 of when we officially started the war on cancer. And when we talked about, well, we started that war, how are we doing in that war? And people say, oh, you know, like what you said, we've t- put so many billions of dollars into this. Have we even made an, an impact? And I said, actually, we, we have. And I tell people this because I think that um, the general public doesn't know this. And it's probably our fault because we haven't been good enough messaging it. But when I say, you know, we, we, the, 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 the cancer community, the cancer research community really started to make great strides in the 1990s. So between 1970s when we started this effort and the 1990s, about two decades, we didn't have much to, to show for but now you talk about the mid-90s to where we are today, um, when I share this number with people, I said, "Do you know that we've actually decreased cancer deaths across all cancers by over wow. 30 percent?" about that. Yeah, that's what you said, right? Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's the response I get from people because people say, "I never knew that, right? And that, is that a real number? Look it up. It sure is. And when I say, well, let's talk about a cancer that's the most common in women, breast cancer, where there's over 250,000 cases in the US that are diagnosed uh, uh, per year. It's uh, our most common cancer in women. Um, What if I were to tell you that since the 1990s, we've uh, decreased breast cancer deaths by over 40%? That
0: that, that blows your
1: mind. Now, But if if you have a close friend or a relative that is an advanced breast cancer patient what does that mean to that breast cancer patient that doesn't that doesn't quite have the effect because they are already in stage 4 metastatic they're they're taking uh, uh, probably uh, advanced therapies that may or may not be working because we still lose close to 40,000 of, of breast cancer patients a year right so we still haven't won that right but 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 when we think about winning I, I can I can point to many battles that we've won, right? and 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 when you say, "Well, where have we won? Um, you can you can point to basically the ones that we've had the strongest effects on are the ones that we've been able to screen. So screening has been magic because when you can tell somebody is going to either be predisposed to a cancer or we can find it when it's really small in what we would call like a stage one, your chances of living are astronomically going to be better than if unfortunately we only diagnose you when you're in your advanced stage. Even though I've had it in my in my family, I know that if I'm unfortunate to have it, but if I can find something where I'm at a stage one, I, I'm going to be much more likely. And this is what's been happening in breast cancer and colon cancer with colonoscopies and other ways in which right now we're screening for people and in and in lung cancer. And this is great imaging. This is other great technology. So that all goes back to what we we're talking about research. It's not only about researching for a new drug. It's about researching in physics and engineering for new imaging technologies. So we can find tumors much deeper into tissues when they're much smaller and we can biopsy. And then we can have the pathologist tell us, yes, that looks cancerous. Well, let's go in there and scope it out and then let's make sure your lymph nodes are clean and make sure there's very little chance that you're going to have any advancement from that initial staging right and that's how we've gotten to 30% and that's how we've even been better in breast cancer and the numbers in lung cancer are are looking really good because lung cancer is our number 1 killer that is mm-hmm. you know and but but again by by things, yes, yes, smoking cessation and the billions of dollars that our taxpayers have put into that, we've been very aggressive across the country in showing people that if, if they can manage their smoking and, and they can cut it out of their lives. And we know the carcinogens that are were a, a causative factor in changing the DNA in our, link, in our lung cancer and our lung cells um, were a contributing factor in, in, in lung cancer. We've been able to dramatically reduce that. And now, when you think about what's revolutionized cancer care in probably the last five now years, with what we you know with I think the general public is starting to be aware of the word immunotherapy, um this is again from what my oncology colleagues tell me has been a game changer in uh, in lung cancer. And so between asking people to smoke less, being able to screen it early, having good surgeons to take out, a tumor and then being able to also incorporate good new treatments that includes immune therapy you know the numbers and what we can predict another in the next 20 years and how we're going to be able to cut down lung cancer by another 40% you don't ignore those numbers you have to be able to tell somebody we're not losing this war we're not we haven't won it because i can tell you many cancers that are still grim But it's hope. And and I I can tell you, and it sounds very philosophical, but there is not a single grant that goes out of my lab from any one of my grad students or postdoc fellows that we submit without knowing that we have the taxpayers' uh, best interest in mind, where we know that that research is going to be funded by a taxpayer dollar. And we're only gonna do that research based on the hope that we're gonna make our own difference by what we can contribute to this solving and, and curing the war and finding a, uh, an answer to this.
0: You work in the trenches, so you know what you're talking about when you're talking about hope. But let me dig a, just a tad bit deeper. Um, so to be clear, there is the big C, the overarching disease condition. And then there are all the ways that condition manifests throughout the body. And if I understand it again correctly from biology, the big C is basically uh, an overgrowth of cells. Can you can you define it a little bit better? The big C, and then let's talk a little bit more about those diseases that are the most frustrating right now to manage.
1: Yeah. So um, the 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 big C uh, can really uh, occur in, in two ways. Either uh, you know you could you could either be born with a mutation that we call a a familial cancer, where you've inherited a mutation based on your family history. Uh, And we often talk about that with breast cancer. There's about a 10% chance that a a woman may have a mutation that's been passed down, um, where then she is very likely to have breast cancer. And, but when you know that with good genetic counseling, you can can treat that uh, uh, accordingly. Um, And then there's the other type of big C that that arises what we call spontaneously, meaning um, uh, because of either many risk factors, either you're smoking, uh, weight management, uh, socioeconomic, there's a lot of factors, genetics, there's Mm -hmm. a lot that goes into play of why people will get cancer, but it is spontaneously arising somewhere in your body over the course of time, mutations have happened into your DNA and this has caused a normal cell that was a normal cell, let's say, in your kidney or in your liver that was performing a normal bodily function. is no longer normal. Over the course of time, it has incurred enough mutations. Uh, Our immune system, unfortunately, which is very good at recognizing these mutations and clearing out these uh, mutant tumor cells at the very, very beginning, for whatever reason, there's lots of mechanisms, and and we've become very good at understanding that. No longer is able to clear out that mutation, that mutant cell, and so now that 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 foreign cell starts to divide, and it escapes the immune system, and it becomes a a, a tumor. Um, and if it advances and we don't see it, then it can metastasize, and that's when it becomes very dangerous. When it when it loses its local uh, in moves from the local area it was in and it uses the the circulation systems that we have to go to another site and to spread um so those those are the big Cs, and and, and they uh, they are both started uh by mutations in our genes that 's where that 's where it all starts now we have taken uh if you w- if we can use the word advantage we've taken advantage of knowing about mutations because When we talk about a big C, we have to break that down in what we've learned now in the last 20 years um, by all the the great, again, research that's gone into it. Again, we give credit where credit is due. This has all been supported and much by, by our U.S. taxpayer who's been able to give us the opportunity to understand how to sequence our DNA very rapidly now. And what that means is now we've been able to understand that when we talk about a big C in one type of cancer, breast, let's go back to breast, right? We know now there's just not one type of breast cancer. And I know that you've heard about that. And I know many of people that are listening to this probably have heard about that. But we talk about subtypes. And that's important to know, because the more we know about that cancer, breast cancer as a subtype, then that means that the better we'll be able to understand how drug A can fight subtype A and how drug B can fight subtype B. And with that information, we can then start doing, you know, the word is personalized medicine, Mm -hmm. but we very much believe that we can do that. And immune therapy is a perfect example of that. We know that people who have lots of mutations in their cancer, tend to respond much better to immune therapy than people who have cancer, but that don't have a lot of mutations in their, in their tumors. Uh, but we, again, know that by being able to get that genetic information and subtype these tumors and be able to recognize what type of tumor may be more responsive to particular therapy. So big Cs break up into smaller Cs, into subtypes that we can profile because we have access to genetic material. And importantly, then we try to understand how we can take that research and how we can translate it by knowing that subtype and then figure out why is that subtype the way it is and can we then design treatments against that specific subtype. And in certain cases, we have been able to. We have been able to win certain smaller battles in certain subtypes of cancers.
0: I think it's uh, important to note that Hollings Cancer Center not only is a high-impact, high-performing research center um, in the terms of clinical trials, it's also a place where you can learn how to prevent cancer because there's research being done about that. And maybe that's one of the more important messages people can get early in their lives is um, how to um, narrow the opportunity for cancer to happen in the body based on environmental factors, on, on how you live your life. Uh I know we've talked to Dr. Marvella Ford many a time about um disparities in cancer. So can you tell us about the current research being done regarding cancer, where it's going compared to where it has been, especially now that we know to some degree we can control those risk factors,
1: if you will. That's a fair statement. I think you know if you if you took uh, i i'll be able to answer it in one way based on what i know but i i'm i'm sure there are other cancer experts in specific fields that would also be able to tell you wait a minute no we're also going to we're also we would also do it in this way too so i'm only going to answer it in, the, in 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 one way just to be fair to my colleagues because you're absolutely right dr ford who works in her area would be able to tell you other ways in which they feel their breakthroughs are going to be occurring but, um, you know, I, I'll go back to just uh, something that, you know, the my oncology colleagues just we we talk all the time on and that's this this immune therapy. Right. Um, because we've seen we've seen the difference. OK, um, I, I have a colleague of mine who's uh, a colon a, a colon medical oncologist. So in in, in the GI um, now there are subtypes of colon cancers that absolutely have responded so well to immune therapy. And when I, when I heard my colleague say this to me about four years ago, when this was just starting to happen, he, in his, in his patients, whenever, whatever he could give them back at the time, four or five years ago, he was maybe getting, I don't know, a 10 to 20% response, meaning 20% of his patients, right, um, were responding to the kind of chemotherapy or treatment he was able to give to them at that time. Right. And then when immune therapy started coming around and, and they were testing it on all variety of cancers and he gave it to this subtype of, of colon cancer patients that he had. Now he was getting a response of where 60 to 80%. Wow. And he used the word to me that Dennis, this is a game changer. Okay. So this is an oncologist who's been in the profession for like 40 years. He's been living with seeing his patients not make it in many cases who were had more advanced stages in colon cancer. And he was telling me, here a PhD scientist that studies cancer, right? The dentist, this is a game changer, okay? He would not use those words if he didn't believe it himself. He, he wasn't seeing it himself in his patient. Now, does this mean it's applicable to all colon cancer patients? No, it does not. It is a subtype of colon cancer patients who have high mutation rates because high mutation rates, it makes, again, these cancers more sensitive to this immune therapy that that works so well, okay? But I use that as an example because what I think throughout oncology we're trying to understand is, how do we replicate that? How do we make immune therapy work on cancers right now where nothing is working or very little is working, okay? We have to understand why that cancer is not responsive to immune therapy and we have to figure out a way to make it responsive. So figure out from the research, why isn't it responsive? And then from the research, how do we make it responsive? It goes back to the original question about being an NCI designated cancer center. We're chartered to figure that out, right? And so in my own research, I I work in both pediatric cancers and also adult cancers. And on the adult cancer side, I work in pancreatic cancer. That is an example of where we've seen very, very little difference, right? Ruth Ginsburg, Alec Trebek, um, you know, Aretha Franklin, uh, Patrick Swayze. We can go on and on with all the celebrities and all the famous people we've lost to pancreatic cancer. Um, uh, and it is still a des- it's it's predicted to be in you know in about a decade from now our, our second deadliest cancer so it's it's on the rise mm. um, and we know that now immune therapy has not really worked in that cancer now a lot of labs are putting a lot of effort into figuring can we make it work and there's some promising re- uh, research that's being done on that but to get to your question where the breakthroughs are going to come. The breakthroughs are going to come when I think we can exploit what's been done so well. We've seen game game-changing things happening in subtypes of colon cancer, certainly in lung cancer, certainly in melanoma, and um, and in some other cancer types as well. And I can tell you that many of my colleagues here are are spending a lot of time figuring out how can we make immune therapy more effective, and and um, how, how can we uh, apply that to other cancers because. We're all hopeful that we will be able to um, because we've seen the science and we've seen the changes and, and we've seen patients live longer. And that's ultimately what, what, what we're striving for.
0: Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, when we first began the podcast, m- my first guests for the podcast were uh, members of the team in immunotherapy. And um, and it's really wonderful to see these the passion of these people. They talk about science never sleeps. You know, they're at it day and night, uh, and uh, they've already made a difference. What are the most prevalent cancers in South Carolina, and and what is Hollings Cancer Center doing to make a difference for our citizens?
1: Well, I I, I mean, we reflect what the country sees, right? Lung, Mm. prostate, breast, um, these are still the number one cancers uh, in our country and as well um, in in our our state. We have uh, a higher uh, minority population, we are more diverse. Um, So, uh, uh, numbers uh, for African uh, American um, uh, males, for example, in prostate cancer are significantly higher than in a Caucasian population. So we know in our state, we have to be more mindful to trying to improve treatment in prostate cancer because our own South Carolinians or African American men are more susceptible to prostate cancer almost. Can I ask a
0: question with regard to that? Yeah. Um, is it because, and I don't know if you guys have been able to delve into all this research, but is it because uh, African-American men are more susceptible or is it because they don't have access to preventative medicines and 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 care that Caucasians have? Is that a fair question?
1: It is a fair question, but I almost say that would... Uh that would devote a separate podcast. (laughs) I'm sure. But I mean, (laughs) it's something to think about in
0: terms of, in terms of, and we won't get into it, but it's something to think about in terms of health policy for our state and, you know, uh, talk about prevention and economic impact. And so, uh, you know, just listening to you, I see how, you know, this is not just a question of cancer care or research. It's a question of the health and well being of our citizens. And the health and well-being of our state. So just that one type of cancer presents a lot of issues that um,
1: that folks should know about. I guess. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and I because I don't study that that particular cancer, I don't want to say anything that's that would misinform your audience. But I I can tell you, uh, you are spot on in how you you view this as a very important uh, cancer and how. Uh, in our state, we have to think about it from many different ways. So, um, it, it is it is not only being able to do the research so that you can provide better, cutting edge uh, therapies, and then be able to provide clinical trials and enroll patients to try to be able to see if those therapies are effective. But it's being able to do what Dr. Ford um, does and 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 um, uh, and and our others that are part of what we call our cancer control. Uh, program in our cancer if, if you if you allow me this goes back again to this whole de- NCI designated cancer centers a cancer center you are you are you are asked by the NCI to have uh, a program that that uh, uh, that is what we call cancer control where you are going out into the community and you are then, um, connecting with, uh, with those in the community to try to engage, to inform, to educate about these kind of, of, of care practices that you're doing. So for prostate cancer, it's absolutely the case where our, our cancer control team, which is uh, really a, a beacon of, of our cancer center and what they do and how effective they've been, um, go out and try to then tell people, We need your help because the research that we're doing at at Hong's Cancer Center is really only going to be as good as your your, uh, ability to help us understand by enrolling in clinical trials uh, if they're going to be effective. Because we don't know at the end of the day if whatever we do in our labs and whatever we do when I call that word translation and we apply it to the clinic and are are those new treatments going to be more effective for a caucasian population or an african-american population right and it, and if it's only going to be the former then how have we served our state we're only going to serve our state if we can serve everyone in our state doesn't matter what what your 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 race or culture your sex is it, it has to be applicable to everyone and in or in order to know that we're going to have to do this as a team you know we're going to have to be able to tell you that we're going to need people to enroll in our clinical trials and you're and and this you know in, in our day and age where we've heard a lot about miscommunication, mistrust and even now with even covid how many people are mindful of the vaccination you know um it's what cancer control does for us it's it's it's, it's one of the things they do and they do it very well but that kind of gets to your question about it it really is an all-encompassing thing it's it's what we can do but it's also what our our own people can do in our state with us to try to tackle this big big um, big problem, at least for something like prostate cancer. Does it, does that help?
0: That is, yes. I think that absolutely summarizes what opportunity uh, being an NCI designated cancer center can do, and what MUSC does statewide. I think that is very important, and we will uh, share with folks the Hollings link so that they can they can become community engaged with the cancer center, which I know you, you all really desire. Um, We talked about translational science. Can you, you are the associate director of translational sciences at Hollings. And so, but you're a basic scientist. Could you just uh, kind of explain the importance of each in making the whole?
1: Yeah. The the importance of each and making the whole absolutely requires very close communication and coordination with Uh, with all of those three parts and into the summation of those three parts. So when we talk about um, research on the basic science side, which is what I do, I'm a basic scientist. It really is uh, being able to do the experiments in your laboratory that can be done either in a test tube or that can be uh, tested in an animal model. Um, And that's about as far as we get because I'm not a clinician. So I I have to, at that point, then if I feel like our research or any of my colleagues research that's working on that basic science side, um, sees really promising results from what we're able to do in the test tube and what we were able to test a little further on um, in terms of maybe, let's say we go back to that example about in certain cancers like pancreatic, we haven't figured out why those tumors are not responsive to immune therapy. We have to figure out why and then we have to figure out you know, how to, how, to, um, how to treat them. So figuring out why, that's what a basic scientist would do. They would get into the nuts and bolts about what is so special or different about a pancreas cancer that is different from, let's say can- lung cancer melanoma or certain subtypes of colon that have been very responsive, right? So those are the kind of breakthrough basic science discoveries that you try to make. And then if you have an understanding, you say, now, how can we now translate that? So that's that second part, right? And so this is where now you're going to have the basic scientists and the physicians start to get together and figure out translation. And the translation part still typically uses animal models because, unfortunately, um, this is still the best way to be able to understand if a particular, uh, you know, whether it's, it's imaging, whether it's, it's, it's surgical, whether it's a device, whether it's a drug, you have to kind of figure it out in this kind of system before you can advance it to people. That's typically what the, 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 the pipeline is when we cop out translation. But it's the physician and the basic scientists who now kind of start working together to kind of figure out, okay, um, what, what would be that kind of uh, treatment that we would use, that we would test? Can we get um, results that are gonna be meaningful? And if the results are meaningful, then it goes to that third part where we can actually now start having discussions with the FDA, put together a protocol that we would then do a fa- what we call phase one, which again, I think the public now is more familiar with these phase one, phase two, phase threes, because they are really all about first safety and second about how effective they are and then how really effective they are by being able to prove it in a much bigger population so you get all the people that are really good at statistics to tell you whether it's really meaningful or not. And it's whether it wasn't really a one off or kind of a lucky thing because your numbers were so low that just by flipping a coin, you got lucky and it worked. Right. But you got to prove it. Right. So those are the kind of three steps. And and um and and right. So as my role in the Cancer Center as as associate director of translational science. You know, I I, uh, I work closely with the associate director of clinical science because uh together we are supposed to move that again as a cancer center we are supposed to move basic discoveries from the lab all the way to clinical trials. That's what we're expected to do. And so we have to be very good at at making sure we as a cancer center uh always have mechanisms in place so our, our basic scientists can find our physicians and talk. Right. And that's very difficult because, it, <laughs> because yeah. you, you can you can you can ask that question to Every uh, scientists and physicians across the country, uh, and and it's not just science. I mean, it's I mean, look at in the past year, what we've all figured, you know, uh, over COVID is like everybody's so busy, right? It's so hard right. to, and and so that's really, um, and so I I'm proud to say that in our cancer center, we have since 2018, I think figured out an, another way in which we can bring physicians closer to our scientists and that's basically by organizing these uh, these subgroups of, of tumor specific working groups so we we have currently eight of these tumor specific working groups were really on a monthly basis people who are experts in breast cancer or pancreatic cancer or lung cancer or um, or uh, hem malignancies or colon cancer they come together and and the, the basic scientist talks to the physician, and they talk about what breakthrough discoveries are happening, and and importantly, how do we move them along? And and I'll just I'll just finish by saying the last piece of that puzzle, though, and I very much strongly believe in this, is that, and I think this has been very well built, well proven by by COVID nineteen, is that you know you can do all the great uh, groundbreaking discoveries in the lab, you can you can move that and translate that, and 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 move that to the clinic. But mostly, mostly at the end of the day, what you're gonna kind of still need is a is a partner in the pharmaceutical industry, and so we've heard a lot about Pfizer, we've heard a lot about Moderna, we've heard a lot about Johnson Johnson, we've heard a lot about AstraZeneca, and, and what that means is that you know uh, there is a component to being able to translate and effectively treat, where you're gonna you're gonna need that third entity of that team, and so what I also try to do is I also try to where it's appropriate if we can find a, a drug that's already out there that may be specific for that that discovery we made in the lab and it could move things quicker to a clinical trial we will contact that pharma to see if they want to partner with us so that we can move that and that's again what a you know a cancer center is supposed to be doing it's supposed to be in a way leveraging all all resources that we can to bring best care practice to our patients of South Carolina.
0: Uh, I couldn't have said it better. And in fact, again, one of the reasons we do these podcasts is to help and inform our audience that Medical University of South Carolina is an academic health center, the only academic health center in the state of South Carolina. And what makes that so important is just what you're talking about. When you have basic scientists who are just down the hall from clinical scientists and you get to talk to each other, and you inform each other's uh, research and care, that makes such a huge difference. Um, it's like you said, it's not like a hospital can't really care well for a cancer patient, but the Hollings Cancer Center has at its at the ready all of these different resources to come together, all this brain trust, all of this uh, care and, um, and direction and, and focus, that makes such a difference, and and I really, I just really hope that our citizens will take full advantage of this opportunity. It's a it's a great resource. It's a great treasure. Tell me what what kind of optimism can you share with regard to pediatric
1: cancers? Yeah, you you really touch on something very important. I'm glad you brought up Laura, because um, uh, just just yesterday I was I was, I was on a, a a call with many other people, but we were listening to. A couple who was sharing their 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 story of their of their of their childhood had a uh, a neuroblastoma and was treated here at uh with our pediatric oncologist at um in Sean Jenkins children's hospital which we're very proud of to have this new hospital and the kind of care we can bring and what we're expected to give again for a pediatric population um but you know it it, it the reason your question is is so meaningful is because um Yeah, I could tell you again, I could throw a lot of numbers at you. and I could say, ah, well, if you want to talk about winning that war, ah, you know, back in the 1970s, if if you were a parent and you were told that your child had cancer, you know, the chance of your child living five years, five percent, five percent, you know, that's a death sentence, right? Mm -hmm. Now, where are we in 2020, 2021? We tell you your child has cancer and, you know, what's the chances of them being able to to live. And we talk about this five-year survival rate, because that's the way they, that's the kind of the way we we look at it It may not be the right metric, but that's what we talk about it. You know, we've gone from 5% now to, we can say 90%. What are you telling me? I have a 90% chance that my child can live through this cancer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a hell of a, hell of a journey. Uh, most likely your child is going to get aggressive surgery, aggressive radiation, aggressive chemotherapy, but yeah, you know, um, we can't we don't know about the long-term effects. There's gonna be probably some of that, but they'll live, you know? And so you're like, wow, that's awesome. But what about the those parents that we talked to yesterday, right? You know, is that does that give them any more comfort? Probably not, because they don't know. They're they would just start out the journey and they would just have to hope that they're not gonna be the unfortunate 10%. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, just like we talked about with any cancer patient or, 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 or family member who has to deal with that on a personal level, right. uh, we've had some wins. So uh, the reason I'm getting I- into it with this one is because, yeah, they're the little people, right? <laughs> they're not supposed to get cancer. Older people get cancer because our immune <laughs> system wears down. We're predisposed. Maybe we don't take care of our body the way we should. But these are little people. They're yeah. innocent. They have no, they have no, they're not, you know, and they were just, it was unfortunate. So to get to, just to let you know, though, that, um, yeah, you know, um, the, the little people can take the aggressive treatments better because they are, they're younger. So their tissues regenerate better. Uh, they have more stem cells. So when we do things oh. like Stelcem transplant therapy, bone marrow transplant, it's very aggressive very hard on them, but it's, it's been successful, uh, because they have a chance to rejuvenate and regenerate better than, than probably you and I can, right. Cause we are, mm-hmm. some of our stem cells have been a little depleted as we grow older, but, um, but, but yeah, but it's still, but we, we've, we've, we've done, we've done very well. Uh, now, you know, there are going to be some, some cancers, uh, that we can say curative. Um, and when, when, a an oncologist will be able to tell a parent we we if we've we diagnosed your child's cancer, we can give you a pretty good confidence that this will be curative uh, and and so those those are magic words, mm. but sometimes you know you can say this should work, but if it comes back and and it doesn't it and it, it recurs and and it's metastatic, then you know the chances are going to be a lot harder, and then we're going to have to fight this longer. So, and that, and that, and unfortunately that happens because we are obviously still losing children to, to, to cancers. And just like adult cancers, there are some right now that we just haven't been able to effectively treat when they're in their more aggressive form. Uh, But, you know, going from 5% survival in 1970 to 90% survival now is a good number. And we just have to work really extra hard. And that's part of what I try to contribute. And, uh, with my oncology colleagues again, trying to figure out how do we find the next, you know, discovery. How do we, how do we translate that? And importantly, I would love to do more clinical trials right here in Sean Jenkins because we're perfectly suited for it in our pediatric oncology division, right? With Michelle Hutchbiss and right, Kirk- right,
0: she's excellent, so, absolutely, yeah. um, wonderful, and 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 hopeful. And um, I guess we just keep powering on with the help of our community and with you know i i think if anything when people get the call to uh, please participate in some form or fashion um that they should consider this as a real honor and opportunity uh, to be a part of something bigger both for themselves their family and and for humanity and so I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Guttridge, for a very hopeful and informative conversation. I, I truly look forward to speaking with you in the future to get updates on how we are moving the needle forward in cancer research and prevention. Thank you so yeah. much.
1: and thank you. And thank you for having me on just to, to to just let everybody know out there that when we talk about the Hollins Cancer Center and MUSC Health, you know, we're really talking about a community, a family, and then it's a team effort. It's it's what we can do, but it's what all of us can do. And we need we need you, and that's how we're going to solve many of the problems that we're working on uh, in in cancer. So, um, and we and like like you said, Lorette, we I can tell you I, because I, I observe it. My colleagues work very very hard, and Indeed. and we're proud of that. But we also know that there um that there's obviously more to do. So, thank you Indeed. for having me on. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you, it's been a pleasure. And to our audience, if you'd like to learn more about the incredible work being done in cancer research and clinical care, check out the Hollings Cancer Center website at hollingscancercenter.musc.edu. Thank you, Dr. Guttridge. I wish you every success as you work toward uh, making a difference in cancer care. And uh, to our audience, we'll see you next time.